morning. As Ben said, we're in Romans 12, 14 through 21. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will weep. You will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the very word of God. We visited a, a new pizza restaurant where I went to pick up some pizza on Friday. Uh, my wife had purchased a restaurant.com gift certificate. Lesson learned. Don't buy from restaurant.com anymore. This is the second time this has happened to us. I walked into this place and they would not accept the coupon. And uh, so it was opening day, the Rangers game. I had my Rangers jersey on. I was excited, like this is going to be a lot of fun. And uh, I walked in and I said, here's this coupon. And he went and got the owner. And the owner walked out, looked at, just quickly saw what I was showing him and said, we don't accept that. And turned around and walked off. And I said, you won't accept that? You're on their website. We bought this coupon from there. And he said, why are you having an attitude with me? And this thing got hostile real fast. I was just picking up pizza. That's all I was there to do. The guy then said, I'm not selling it to you. And he took the food away. Like, I was shocked. This guy was not going to even sell me the pizza over a dispute about this coupon. And uh, I honestly thought that... You know, I wondered, would anybody in here know who I am? Because I'm about to lose it. I was just about overcome by evil on Friday at the pizza restaurant. Finally, I came to my senses. I took a deep breath. And I let the man say what he wanted to say to me. Then I told him I understood. And I asked him, can I have the pizza? And he sold it to me. And he gave me a discount, which I quickly made up by giving him a handsome tip. So I think we all won, but man, that was stressful. Just picking up the pizza from the pizza store. Um, I thought, of course, this must be appropriate, given that this is the passage that I would be asked to preach this Sunday. From Romans chapter 12, this passage takes us, I think, from what we looked last week, kind of the internal relationships within the Christian community. Paul's going to come back to that later. But this passage in the beginning of chapter 13 is focused mostly on the relationships that we as Christians and we as a church have with those outside, with unbelievers with those who do not share our faith. But the theme of our relationship with those who are outside the church, who are outside the Christian faith, 
the motivation is similar to the one that we saw last week that should motivate the relationships we have amongst ourselves. And that is the theme of genuine love. We are still called to express genuine love even to those outside, and yes, even to those who might be hostile to us. Here we are told in the passage before us that as Christians, we must respond. We must respond to the hostilities of the, of the world with mercy and genuine love. We must respond to the hostilities of the world with mercy and genuine love. It's a little difficult to try to see if there is kind of structure to what Paul is bringing up in these several verses, but there's one theme that Paul kind of touches on three different times in the verses that Jeremy just read before us. And it's the theme of not retaliate, retaliating when we are shown hostility. He says it kind of three different ways. Specifically, we are to bless and not curse. Second, we are to plot for good rather than plotting for revenge. And then third, a a bit strangely, we are to seek restoration, not justice. So we are to bless and not curse. When shown hostility... Toward our faith, we are called, we must, bless, not curse. We are to plot for good, not revenge. And we are to seek restoration, not justice. But I've got to warn you as we get into these verses this morning. None of this is possible unless... We have our minds renewed by the mercies of God, exposited in the first 11 chapters of Romans, transitioned in those first two verses at Romans chapter 12, unless we are transformed into the image of Christ by having our minds renewed by the mercies of God, none of this will be possible. I say that because... Much of the ver- many of these verses that were just read to us, if we're honest, they're sort of feel-good exhortations. They're easy to affirm. They are notoriously difficult to carry out. We're going to have to be honest about this if we intend to take Paul's exhortations to us in these verses seriously. So let's jump in. Consider the first act of mercy to which the Christian community is summoned. Right here in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now this is what our Lord ordered in Luke chapter 6 verse 28 when he said, Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And it is of course what Jesus himself exemplified as he went to the cross on Good Friday and prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. While the actions of the world toward the church may indeed deserve a curse, 
God's people are commanded to bring a blessing instead. Now, most of us are spared right now from the credible threat of physical and violent persecution for our faith. The guy in the pizza store is not really what Paul has in mind. The persecution that we tend to experience usually takes a different shape, but there's a point here that I think for us living in a free society, we still need to not miss. The Christian life understood to be the privilege of being counted as a member of the inaugurated kingdom of God on earth is necessarily outward, public, and expressive. That is what makes it such a target for hostilities and persecutions. If you and I keep our faith to ourselves and seek thereby to minimize the potential for faith-based harassment, then perhaps we really don't possess the faith that Jesus said would draw the ire of the unbelieving world. Now, that doesn't mean, of course, that we're called to be belligerent or to go out and try to stir up trouble. But if we're going to live as faithful followers of Christ, it's going to put us at odds with a world that does not get him and cannot comprehend those who are loyal to him either. But now we must also see that while we cannot prevent all forms of persecution, we are responsible for responding to it in a way that reflects the renewed mind of the believer in Jesus. And that means we must not curse. We must not curse those who persecute us. Now, to curse is not to utter an expletive. I mean, you probably shouldn't do that either. Yeah, that's probably not a good idea. But the idea of cursing comes from the concept of an utterance to a supernatural power that brings harm by its very expression. What is forbidden for you and me as Christians is the place, let's just be honest, it's calling down a curse. It's putting someone under a curse. Now, I know you might think that you don't possess a power like that. You might think that's the kind of talk that doesn't usually happen in a Christian community, right? Like calling down curses. But I want you to just consider the the opposite of a curse. We must not curse. We are called to what? We're called to bless. From a Christian perspective, the power of blessing and cursing comes from the believer's vocation as a member of God's kingdom of priests. Here in a little bit, at the end of our service, after communion, After you've picked up your kids and we've sing a couple songs, there's going to be a benediction. It's a blessing. And what we've kind of accustomed ourselves to do is we hold our hands like this. And the one giving the benediction usually holds their hands like this. do Do you realize what's happening? This is, in Christian terms, in a benediction, it is the calling down of a blessing by the very words that are uttered. You have that power? You have that power because you are a kingdom of priests by the mercies of God. So, by the very words that come from our mouths as Christians, we can either bless or curse. 
The thing is, Christians are instructed in James 3 verse 9 to never use our mouths to curse. Here's what it says. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. But it's not just that we are to refrain from cursing. We must rather in its place bless. Yeah, you have the power like Harry Potter to curse or to bless. That's exactly what I'm saying. But this is real. This is even more amazing. And you are to use this power in only one way, brothers and sisters, to bless. Yes, bless. We can and should pronounce blessings upon non-Christians, even on those who might persecute us. Now, can you imagine how revolutionary this idea is? Even if someone should do their worst to us, we are called by the mercies of God to give our best to them. Not even the psalmists carried with them such a perspective. You read the Psalms over and over again, we find from their pen cries for vengeance, effectively the pronouncing of a curse upon their oppressors. This teaching that we're reading right here in Romans is revolutionary. It reflects the teaching of Jesus himself, and it suggests then that we are not permitted as Christians to imitate the psalm, the psalmist who called down curses. It's not that they were wrong in what they did. The point is that as one commentator on the Psalms, Derek Kidner Kidner explains, we simply do not occupy the ground on which they stood. Something revolutionary has changed, and you know what it is. Kidner goes on and writes, between our day and theirs, our calling and theirs, stands the cross You and I are ministers of reconciliation, and this is a day of good tidings. So that's why we must not curse. We are called to use our mouths as citizens of God's kingdom to bless instead. Yet it remains true, doesn't it, that the only way this will be possible is if we have our minds renewed by the mercies of God that we ourselves have experienced. Now, what might this look like? What might it look like to use our mouths to bring a blessing and not a curse? Verses 15 and 16, I think, point us in a direction. It's difficult to know grammatically how these verses relate to the surrounding context, but I'm guessing that perhaps they are meant to be examples, ways in which we use our mouths to bless. Just consider what it takes To rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. To quote one commentator, the Christian is to take his stand beside his fellow man, whoever he may be, to have time and room for him in those experiences in which he is most truly himself, in his real human joy and his real human sorrow. And to strive to be both with him and for him, all together and without reserve, yet without compromising with his evil or sharing or even pretending to share. 
the presuppositions of this age which is passing away, even as God himself is in Christ both with us and for us. Now that requires a transformation of the mind in view of the mercies of God. We Christians usually struggle either with finding ways of sharing in the joys and sorrows of the world or with not discerning where it is that we simply cannot rejoice or grieve with them. If there is a unifying thought in verse 16, it's that we Christians are called to bless by being oriented toward the lowly and resisting any sense of superiority toward our fellow human beings. Again, we see that the kind of behavior, this kind of behavior was exemplified in our Lord Jesus. And being conformed to him means we start to reflect some of his own behavior. Bless, never curse. Now, when we come to verse 17, we see a second way in which the Christian community is called to respond to the negativity it will often experience in the, in the world. We've seen that we're called to bless instead of curse. Now notice, in verse 17, we are called to plot for good, never plotting for revenge. The text says, repay no one evil for evil. And that's a similar concept to bless and do not curse. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 9, we find both of these ideas combined. So, What we're reading here now is not like change of thought, completely different subject. We're still in the same kind of idea that what we just experienced. The attitude that we're called to to maintain is the same as the attitude that was expressed in the previous verses. What's different here in this explanation is that we're dealing now with a consistent teaching from Old Testament to the New. Both Proverbs 17.13 and Proverbs 20.22 urge us to not seek to get even when we are wronged by another. Can we be honest? Easier said than done. It sometimes seems impossible for us to resist the urge to retaliate when someone has wronged us. Can you admit that? I mean, it sometimes seems completely irresistible to not get even. How many parents are well acquainted with one of their children excusing his or her hostile behavior toward a sibling with the words, well, they did it first. The initial evil is always floated as the obvious justification for the second one. But it should never pass by the Christian mind that has been renewed By the mercy of God. And the reason why would include the reasons that we explored previously. The arrival of the kingdom of God has made the transformation. The coming of Jesus has changed the equation for how Christians and the church, the Christian community, are called to respond to the evil done to them. And to this issue, our text will speak more thoroughly in verses 19 to 21, to which we will come momentarily. But what's emphasized in verses 17 and 18 is not so much the reasons why we must not seek revenge, but rather the actions that we are called to take up in its place. Look what it says. We are to give thought 
to do what is honorable in the sight of all. In other words, instead of plotting for revenge, you know, that's what you do when you retaliate. You stew for a while. You plot. You sit at your cubicle and you figure out how you're going to get back at that coworker. Yes? I see a few smiles. Yeah, this is what we do. We plot. And the Bible says, plot. Go ahead, plot. Plot for good. Plot for good. Give thought to what to do, what is honorable in the sight of all. In, in other words, instead of plotting for revenge, plot for peace. The verb that's translated, give thought, here is also used in 1 Timothy 5.8 to refer to the responsibility to provide for your own family. In other words, this is the kind of thing that you've got to put some time and energy into. You have to think ahead. You have to devise a plan. You've got to come up with a scheme, not for revenge. Christians are called to plot instead for an honorable scheme of making peace with those who have wronged them. Can I ask you, when was the last time you plotted for that? And I wonder what it would look like. One thing's for sure, it's not enough to simply refrain from revenge. We must rather do everything we can to think of or to forge a path toward peace. In verse 18, we read, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In conflicts, it is easy for us to assume there's nothing much that we can do to bring about peace, but the Christian plots with the mind of Christ with the very power of his Holy Spirit within him. He does not give up easily and simply move on from troubled relationships. In our daily prayers, the Lord taught us to keep before our own minds those that we need to forgive, those who are indebted to us. We simply do not have the luxury as Christians of ever being done with people. We are to do everything we can to be at peace with all. Now, you probably detected the tone of realism in verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you. We all know that we do not have the power to make peace everywhere we go and in every situation. It cannot be for us as Christians peace at all costs. For we cannot compromise the truth of the gospel or our loyalty to the Lord Jesus in the name of peace. Again, we are reminded there will always be hostilities to the ways of God. And there can be no peace by abandoning God's ways. Liberal-leaning Christians who like to present the Christian faith as a peace-at-all-costs religion are in danger of giving away what they are not authorized to give. But many conservative-minded Christians have the opposite problem. And in the name of truth and doctrine seem to relish almost enjoy creating conflicts with the world around them. A common anthem I've heard over the years is, well, what? We're going to just let them walk all over us? As if it's some sort of badge of honor to get into skirmishes with a hostile world. 
But Christians who have had their minds renewed by the mercies of God will, yes, be ready to make a defense of the hope that is within us. But always, what does he say? With gentleness and respect, always treasuring good behavior in Christ, even to the point of suffering for doing good, Peter says, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil. COVID-19 pandemic that we've been enduring the last couple of years has brought the church's relationship with the world front and center. A lot of the more conservative churches dug in their heels and refused to follow any mandates restricting ordinary church life. While a lot of the more liberal churches seemed to go in the exact opposite direction. And you had to wonder if they considered corporate worship bodies in the same room, singing songs as something that could be mindlessly dispensed of in the name of peace. The church occupies a strange place in this current age. We are the redeemed people of God whose allegiance is to be entirely, uncompromisingly to our Lord Jesus alone, but at the same time, It is our Lord who has commanded us to live peaceably with all. To never be content with hostilities either with one another in the church or with anyone outside the church either. We need our minds renewed by the mercies of God so we can be a transformed people who bring blessing and peace into a deeply troubled world. Now this brings us to the third reiteration of the theme of how we respond to the hostilities of the world in which we live. Verses 19 to 21. We are to seek restoration, not justice. Now that's interesting. Let's see what is happening here. Look at verse 19. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. The verb that is used here, that's translated avenge, it means procure justice. Never procure for yourself justice. That's what it says. Again, it's quite similar to verse 17, which already has forbidden the taking of revenge. When we are wronged, We must not see to it. Justice is done. That is revolutionary. It's not, of course, that we are not to be concerned with justice. (laughs) I hope that when I said that point earlier, you're like, what? Like that should, justice matters to us as Christians. But what is forbidden here is our own execution of justice against one who has wronged us. I couldn't help but be reminded of what Doug Llewellyn would always say at the end of every episode of the People's Court. It's a show I watched when I was a kid. You did too, Judy? Remember what he said? If you're in a dispute with another party and you can't seem to work things out, don't take the law into your own hands. You take them to court. Justice matters, but to the Christian, we are to leave it 
to the wrath of God. And Paul cites from Deuteronomy 32, 35, where God says, vengeance is mine. Justice is mine, God says. I will repay. So vengeance is God's prerogative for the simple fact that only God can judge everything rightly. And only God's wrath is righteous and never mixed with sinful rage. Only God knows how to even the score. Actually, God's justice goes further than that. And we Christians know it. We Christians know it. This is why you must never avenge yourself, never seek justice for yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God. You know why, Christian. You know it in your bones why. Verse 19 says, leave it to the wrath of God. The Greek text literally says, give place to the wrath of God. What we are called to do is to give God's wrath the opportunity to do its job. Now what that means is clear from the greater context of Romans. This is why I hope you've been reading the text, listening to the sermons, because this verse, if you just drop it, somebody says, what in the world does it mean? You just have, you'd have to write a commentary on Romans to understand this. So hopefully we've been tracking, you have, that, that the awesome, holy, and righteous wrath of God first shows up in Romans 1.18, where Paul says it has been revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. The wrath of God, Paul said in Romans 1.18, is no mystery. It's not hidden. It's not waiting to come. It has broken in. The wrath of God has already emerged into the world we inhabit right now. It has been revealed, Paul said two verses earlier, in the gospel of which Paul says, I am not ashamed. You remember Romans 1, 16 to 18? I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. In it, Paul says in verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as is written, the just will live by faith. Next verse, 118. The wrath of God is revealed. In the same gospel, the righteousness of God for salvation has been made plain, and so has the wrath of God. In the same gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation, revealing God's righteousness, but also revealing his wrath. And you say, where is this wrath that has broken in? Where do we see the wrath of God poured out against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? Christian, you know the answer. 
you look at the cross. In the cross of Christ, the wrath of God was poured out. In other words, we Christians ought to be the first to recognize that the wrath of God is what we deserve for our own sins. But God's son took it for us. Consequently, we know that when we yield to the justice of God's wrath, we encounter a justice that smites in order to heal. Did you hear that? When we give place to the wrath of God, we encounter a justice that smites and brings salvation. By making space for God's wrath, we are making space for God's grace to do for others what it has done for us. It's clear then that to leave vengeance to God does not mean (laughs) to hope that he will pour out his wrath on your enemies. I'm given, you're sitting there stewing in your cubicle. Do we still sit in cubicles? And you're plotting, and you're like, okay, I'm just going to give place to God's wrath. God, pour it out on them. <laughs> like, that's not what it means. Sorry if that disappoints you. It's the opposite. It's to pray that God will work the vengeance of his grace so deep that a restorative justice prevails. So when you come to verse 20, I hope we're prepared now for it to make sense in spite of the strange cultural expression that it contains. I mean, you go around saying, yeah, I'm just heaping coals of fire on somebody's head. You should look puzzled. Like, that's weird. We don't talk that way. But it's not weird in the Bible, actually. Okay, so what Paul's doing is he's, he's citing from Proverbs 25, 21, and 22. The first verse of the proverb reminds us again that it's not enough to simply abstain from doing what is forbidden. That's a good start. Don't curse. But it's not enough just to say what you're not doing. We are called as kingdom of priests to do something positive. So it's not enough just to abstain from cursing and blessing to abstain from plotting for revenge, we are called to plot for good. It's not simply enough to abstain. We we have to do something. We have to be positive in what we can bring as kingdom of priests. And here's what he says. When we give place, when we give space to the wrath of God, he says, in so doing, we will heap burning coals on the heads of those who have wronged us. As you can guess, the commentators struggle with this one. And there's two basic ideas. One idea is that heaping coals of fire is an expression of bringing shame upon somebody. So, you know, you do something good when somebody's done something wrong to you and they just go home and they feel guilty about it. And most modern commentators go that direction. But it appears that the earliest church fathers, not to say that that seals the deal, 
they actually saw heaping burning coals on someone's head as a sign of God's judgment. And in fact, every time we find burning coals in the Bible, it's always negative. Including the time when Peter is standing by some burning coals as Jesus is heading to the cross. You find burning coals in the Bible, that's not usually like a good thing. So in fact, I believe that what Paul is saying here, what the proverb is saying, is that when we feed our enemy who's hungry, give drink to our enemy who's thirsty, we are bringing upon them the wrath of God. This is how you make space for God's wrath. This is how you do it. It's not just enough to abstain. I'm not going to I'm not going to seek my own justice. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm not going to avenge. It's it's not just enough to to not do that. There's something you must do positively. But the judgment of God that falls on the... This is the judgment of God that falls on those who resist God's kindness. Romans 2, 4, which says the kindness of God is meant for what? To bring you to repentance. The judgment of God falling on the head as you feed your enemy who's hungry. And of course, it's just a metaphor for meeting every kind of possible need that you can, right? You get that? Is an evidence of the judgment of God that hopefully will soften the heart. Those who refuse to repent when God's kindness represented here in the feeding the hungry enemy, giving him something to drink. Romans 2.5 says they're storing up wrath for themselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will come in its fullness. So our hope as Christians living in a world that's going to be hostile to the faith that we hold, our hope must always be that sinners will repent. Even those who have shown the most hostility toward us and our faith in Christ. But the way to put that hope into action is by meeting the evil we experience with the love and generous goodness of God. The same love and goodness that God has shown us is a far greater power that truly overcomes evil. I just wanted the pizza, to be honest with you. But I did have a moment of thought of, is this what Christians bring into a restaurant? (laughs) It would have been easy to just say, fine, that guy, what a jerk. Another pizza place down the street. But I walked out of there, a poorer man, spent more money than I was going to spend. But hopefully brought a little bit measure of peace, the kind of peace God has shown to me. He's shown it to you too, Christian. Go and do likewise. Let's pray together.